Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. It's Friday, October the 21st, and you're very welcome to the Friday Wrap from the Inside Politics team at the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today's rappers are Pat Leahy, who joins us from Brussels. Hi, Pat. You're my man. And... <laughs> Also joined by Jennifer Bray, who is in some unknown part of Dublin. I'm in my I'm in my home. It's good. We've definitely got we've definitely clearly all got that Friday feeling. Or maybe we're just all still giggling uh, over the events of the last twenty four hours in in London. Pat, um, they're serious on one level, of course, but they're also mind boggling. Just before we started recording here, I was listening to another podcast when I'm a big fan of The Rest is History. The two historians, Dominic um, Sandbrook and uh, Tom Holland, were discussing this very impressively for a history podcast. They recorded it 15 minutes after Liz Truss had resigned, which stretches the definition uh, some, somewhat. But um, they really know their oats when it comes to British politics, particularly Dominic Sandbrook. And he was trying to place uh, mistrust in the pantheon of British prime ministers. First of all, said it was the worst of his lifetime, then the worst post-war prime minister. Then he changed. He said, actually, she was the worst prime minister of the universal suffrage era, which takes us back to the early 20th century. And then he revised it again, worst prime minister since George I, which I think makes her worst of all time. Would you agree with that? Well, we may quickly reach my limits, my knowledge of the uh, prime ministers from the era of George I uh, to uh, round about the middle of the uh, 19th century. But um, you'd have to say that she is uh, she's certainly competitive in that category uh, of most useless British prime minister ever. I think like a lot of people, kind of amazed, but also kind of not surprised, if you know what I mean, at um, at, at her departure. I watched a fair few of the uh, hustings uh, over the summer between herself and Rishi Sunak. And it didn't just seem to me that Sunak was a superior performer. It seemed to me that Truss was almost imbecilic at times in her presentations. And I, I know she was... You know, she was the candidate of the Tory right and therefore she was always likely to win. But I just found myself, you know, watching her during the summer and thinking, even though she was favourite, can they really honestly be thinking of making her prime minister? She was wooden, she was unimaginative, she was a poor communicator, she seemed very, uh, she seemed, you know, very stilted, she seemed slow on her feet, and not with, notwithstanding all those presentational difficulties, the package that she was selling, which is essentially self-funding tax cuts, is one that there is a fairly well-established history of uh, of, of it blowing up in people's faces. So um, 
about your original question, is she the worst British Prime Minister ever? Certainly looking at the vantage, the vantage point of 2022. Yeah, probably. Um, I mean, looking at, there are more stories coming out now about the period of her, uh, brief period of her prime ministership. Um, I remember um, uh, being part of a pub quiz team where I correctly answered that George Canning was the shortest serving UK prime minister in the country's history. That is that is no longer the case. So we need to adjust that. But for example, there's a story this morning I read, uh, Jen, about how herself and Quasi Quarteng were told by senior respected economists who generally supported their economic vision that this would be a disaster if they did it this way. And they ploughed ahead. So it's not just the terrible communication skills, the absence of any real presentational skills at all, as far as we can see, the, the, the apparent vacuity, but also this, I'm not sure, obstinacy, hubris, um, some, you know, something really, really strange going on here. And one wonders what has come to pass in the United Kingdom that such a person could be elected prime minister. Yes, indeed. You mentioned George Canning and, uh, you know, that's the record that she beat. And of course, he died in office after 119 days. So it's, you know, it's always interesting to see a headline saying, you know, the shortest serving, the last one died. Um, but yeah, there definitely seems to have been an obstinance there and a complete lack of willingness to listen to the warnings that she was being given in terms of her mini budget. I mean, I remember there was a piece written by Rishi Sunak and, and I think it was, I'm not actually sure which publication, it could be in Telegraph, but he was talking about, he kind of outlined his vision of what would happen uh, in the first 20 or 30 days of her being the Prime Minister. And it's kind of exactly what happened in terms of what happened to the markets and, and you know, the Bank of England having to step in. And I think there's this sort of, you know, people are looking back to her very short time, people kind of looking at who was she trying to emulate and the fact that she perhaps looked up to people like Margaret Thatcher. But of course, the big difference here is that one lady was returning and, and uh, one lady was not. Um, and I think that, you know, when when the history books sort of recount Liz Truss's very short premiership, it already has not been kind to her. All you have to do is look at the, at the front pages of the British newspapers today and actually the newspapers internationally and there's this sort of mix of schadenfreude and kind of horror as well and also like Pat said this kind of aspect of you know well we told you so and I think the really interesting thing will be now given how disastrously this went will be how do the Tories deal with this next so when they're looking at the what will possibly be the you know the fastest contests now sort of like a contest on speed over the next week you know who are the candidates who are emerging so we're looking at Penny Mordaunt, we're looking at Rishi Sunak. And then, of course, all of the headlines in, in the British newspapers this morning are dominated by the fact that Boris Johnson wants to make another run for it. And there's that is being greeted with a mix of total incredulity uh, on this side of the water anyway. And even within the Conservative Party, it seems to me that actually that is incredibly divisive because you have MPs now who are saying that if he does come back into the fray or into the leadership contest, that they will trigger by-election, that they will effectively quit. Um, and then you have kind of other the other side of the coin, people saying, well, Boris views it as this being in the national interest. And this is something that basically he's stepping back in to come back and, and say, I told you so, which, which is extraordinary. I think that the fact of the matter real, realistically is, I think there's a view um, in the UK that he might struggle to get above 40, because of course we know they need 100, uh, the backing of 100 MPs by 2pm next Monday. So effectively, because of the size of the Conservative Party, that makes it a three-party race. Now, uh, if that is Boris, Penny and Rishi, it'd be interesting firstly to see how they position themselves 
Um, I think Boris will obviously, we've talked about, you know, the way he's viewing it. Rishi will present himself probably as somebody who will be more fiscally conservative. Um, and then, of course, Penny Morda will probably present herself as the unity candidate, somebody who has a clean track record where, you know, Rishi lost out to Liz Truss. Boris will come before a privileges committee, which could make his path even more complicated because imagine the prospect of him taking over as prime minister and then basically, effectively, if he's found uh, to have breached those rules again, to either step down as an MP or trigger a by-election, which would be a complete disaster for the party again. So that's probably where you'll see Penny Morden. But I think what will happen in the next couple of days, if they can't agree a, uni- a, a unity candidate, as they call it, will be possibly even more divisive and even more psychodrama beyond the mini-budget and the fracking debacle on Monday, which saw claims of people being manhandled and, and jostled in the lobby. Yeah, I mean, obviously you have an incredibly divided party here, Pat, but um, and here's here's my last plug is for, for the Rest is History podcast. The point was being made that um, I think it's quite clear that many Tory MPs now do not want this to go to a membership election. And the membership election is what caused this mess in the first place because they voted inexplicably to many people's minds for Liz Truss and might make a terribly, a similarly terrible um, decision again in the view of those MPs. So they may well find a way to crack a deal Perhaps they're too divided to do that. But it does raise a question um, which applies to us on this side of the water as well, which is there was a movement over the last 40 years or so to bring so-called more democracy into political parties and to have the membership elect the leaders as opposed to what was traditionally the case, which was usually the members of the parliamentary party. And that's, you know, started in the United Kingdom, I think with Labour in the 70s and, and 80s. Tony Benn was a big motivating force behind that. But it wasn't even entirely popular in in the Labour Party back then. Paul Foote was against it because he argued, and I think this is the important point, that elected MPs or indeed TDs represent the people who actually vote for the party rather than the hardcore minority who are party activists and therefore are both more qualified and more democratic and are more likely to elect a better a better leader who's likely to win the, the next election. And there's a certain amount of truth in that, looking at what's happened in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn and now with Liz Truss. Yes, I I think you've answered the question uh, <laughs> rather admirably. But do you think Irish political parties should be concerned about that at all? I think, you know, the. I suppose what you gain in democratic legitimacy for the leader of a party, you are at, you're at risk of... Uh, of losing on the other side of the le- uh, of the ledger by allowing the party to be unrepresentative, as you outlined there, and um, a- and that would seem to be, you know, you you, you see that in a, di- a different manifestation of that in the polarization of re- politics in the United States, where candidates, because they have to pass through primary elections consisting of only their the the, the the choice of party activists or registered, uh, are, are registered party voters, they end up over a period of time, you end up with a more extreme uh, slate of candidates because party activists are more motivated, they tend to be more ideologically driven. If you are, you know, if you really believe in, you know... Brexit, or you really believe in controlling immigration into the United States to the extent that you're willing to become a party uh, a party activist, then you're going to go for candidates that are more extreme on those uh, on on those sort of issues. So I think it's it's kind of a swings and roundabouts. As to your question, as to your question uh, about 
Irish political parties. Uh, I, you know, I think if you look at it, if you look at it party by party now, for, for a start, there's a difference in both in uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael in... Um, uh, in, in, in how they select their leaders because they say the Conservative Party under its rules sends the, the final two to the voters to make up their uh, to make up their minds. Both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have differently weighted electoral colleges whereby the members get uh, a voice uh, in it. They might have, I think it's 40% of the vote in uh, in Fianna Gael. It's maybe a bit more in, uh, in, in Fianna Fáil but there's a college, you know, an electoral college system made up of elected reps, members, and uh, and office holders, such as TDs and senators. So um, uh, uh, Sinn Féin, on the other hand, then I, I suppose has a membership vote, but the members tend to do what the leadership. Uh, wants them to do. So, you know, Mary Lou MacDonald was elected by acclamation after Gerry Adams had been re-elected by acclamation every year for whatever it was, 30, 30 plus years. So uh, I'm not sure there are direct parallels with the Irish political parties, the dangers that we have seen so evident in both the US system and the UK system. I'm not sure we've seen the manifestation of them in Ireland yet. And I suppose, the, I mean, the other point is that in both the United States and the United Kingdom, the first-past-the-post system means that essentially you're left with two very large parties. So the capture of one or other of those parties by a small, committed minority has a much bigger impact on the overall political landscape than it does in, say, our system. Yeah, that's true. And, I mean, we have a, you know, I, I suppose while the, uh, you know, the election of Johnson and the increasing extremism of the uh, Brexit extremism of the, of, of the Tory membership is something that has grown over a period of time. You saw in the Labour Party, Party with the election of Jeremy Corbyn, something that was that happened in a very short space of time and was a deliberate policy by you know the left wing group momentum to bring people into the the membership of the Labour Party to make it more left wing. Ed Miliband famously cut the. Um, he uh, he threw open membership of the party to uh, to a, to a much broader cast of people by cutting membership fees and making it very easy to become a member, and that's what enabled Jeremy Corbyn to become uh, the leader of the Labour Party over the objections of many of his MPs. With the sort of consequences, both for the Labour Party and for the United Kingdom as a whole, that uh, that arose from that. So um, just to come back to the election at hand, Jen, and this incredibly truncated contest which you mentioned earlier, I mean, the contrast between the last contest, which I think the electoral contest was about twice as long as Liz Truss's premiership actually ended up being it being in the end, and this one is going to be done and dusted within a week, and really the, the key moment is is Monday with a maximum of three candidates being selected. And really, I suppose it depends what way that divvies up. There mightn't be three, there might only be two. Um, or indeed, they might, all be just, they might all just manage to crack a deal with each other. But looking at the likelihood, it seems that if it's Richie Sunak and Penny Mordaunt, they may actually come to an agreement um, between them, uh, depending upon who got, who got the most votes. If it's Boris Johnson and one of the other two, it seems likely that there'll be a contest. I gather there is one other element which is non-binding, which is there will be an indicative vote among MPs of their preference of the two last candidates standing, which will be given as a signal to the members, whether the members pay any attention to it is another matter. Surely we've been looking at 
this madness in the United Kingdom over the last 12 from outside. The continuing the madness candidate surely is Boris Johnson. It's unimaginable that he would return, isn't it? It's unimaginable is a completely unrealistic, not completely unrealistic. I mean, if it was totally off the wall, I don't think people would be speculating about it as seriously they are. But I, I think I, I would imagine, though, having said this, having watched kind of how British politics has played out um, over the last couple of years, actually, uh, let alone over the last couple of weeks or the last couple of days, anything could happen. But I do think that there seems to be a consensus emerging that the odds are stacked against Boris Johnson for, for a whole range of different reasons. I mean, he lost the support of his MPs for reasons, you know, uh, which have been very well played out in, in relation to his competence, in relation to lying, in relation to allegations of sleaze, um, in relation to all those things that happened during COVID and afterwards, um, which I mentioned earlier on, there's still a privileges committee hearing to be held. And those problems haven't gone away. They're still there and they're still looming over the party uh, and could be potentially disastrous for him. I mean, it's much easier for him to, to weather that storm on the backbenches than it is for him as a prime minister. It's a whole different ballgame with a whole different level of scrutiny at that stage, which is why I think that the other two candidates will be viewed kind of perhaps as being a, a much more serious uh contenders and and you mentioned kind of the length of time or things that she outlasted. I mean, we heard her outlasting a lettuce and then uh, Jedward were on the X Factor for longer than than she was a (laughs) prime minister. But uh, that's just as an aside. But in terms of what will actually, how things will play out. So the the contest has started already, effectively. Um, What you'll probably see and read about over the weekend papers and in the coming days will be a lot of loyalties tested, a lot of betrayals, a lot of horse trading, a lot of promises made as the contenders try and get to the um, threshold, which has been increased from the summer uh, leadership election from, I think, 20 to 100 now. So the nominations close, like I mentioned, at 2pm on Monday. Um, At that stage, then there'll be a ballot of MPs, which will be held between half three and half five on Monday. That result will be announced at six o'clock and the candidate with the least votes at that stage will be eliminated. So if you've got three candidates effectively uh, and two remain, there'll be an indicative vote then. And that's just to give an idea of where those two, between half six and half eight on Monday and that result will be announced at nine. So you'll have a really good idea basically by Monday night of where everybody stands and who, which MPs fell on which side kind of uh, over the, the weekend. Now you also mentioned kind of this idea of party members getting a say. So like if neither of the final two candidates pulls out uh, in favour of basically saying a unity candidate or coronation, whatever way you want to describe it, then there will be an expedited, what they describe as an expedited binding online vote of Conservative Party members to choose the next leader. Uh, I'm not 100% sure how that process works in terms of the online vote, but I think that'll become clear uh, over the next couple of days. Uh, and then the plan is that to have the whole process over by this day next week, effectively. Um, and then, of course, they have their actual budget and there's talk about that being delayed because of the, the very tight timescales involved and the fact that you'll have a new prime minister coming in to effectively, uh, you know, immediately have to rubber stamp this uh, new programme by the, the new chancellor. So we'll see what happens there. Um, I think one thing they'll be really looking to do is to kind of stabilise, you know, uh, stabilise the situation both in terms of the markets and in terms of the economy. Um, but that that's the time frame. That's the indicative time frame. Lots of horse trading over the weekend. Indicative votes Monday, all done by next Friday, effectively, in the summary. I could have just said that in the beginning, but I thought I'd give you the detail. <laughs> I think the important point to make is that the, the what the ERG, the European Research Group, 
group of Brexit hardliners does will be very important because if there's no, if Suella Braverman doesn't stand, then, and if there is no ERG, uh, ostensible ERG candidate, then Johnson has a much better chance of getting to 100 uh, to 100 nominations if everybody in the uh, ERG along with his own supporters weighs in behind him. If there is an ERG candidate, then it's difficult to see. So if Braverman, uh, if Braverman runs, it's difficult to see at that stage how Johnson can get to, uh, can get to 100 votes. So, and I think they're going to have a, they're going to have a meeting on Monday. They're going to have their own, uh, discussions on Monday about it. And then they'll make an announcement after that. So that would be a key moment, uh, on Monday to decide what the ERG does. I see there's talk this morning of Kemi Battenock standing again. She stood the last time. She's similarly on the right, uh, on, yeah. on, on the right wing of the party. So any of those might be, and this is where, of course, this can all get very down and dirty. Any of these could be could act as a spoiler for Boris Johnson, couldn't they? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's it is very much the will in in. in to the extent that one can speak of the Tory party as a unitary political consciousness uh, and, 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 and that's a bit of a stretch at this stage. Uh, it is very clear that the the will of the party, of senior figures in the party is that this shouldn't go to the members, that this should be a choice of the that this should be a choice of the MPs but that requires everybody to uh, or, uh, certainly all the leading candidates to sign to, to to sign up to that. It's clearly this indicative vote of the last two candidates that that is intended to be the uh, the, the the leadership runoff. And whoever loses that will come under ferocious pressure from his or her colleagues. I think to stand aside and not uh, not send it to the members. The problem is if one of those is Johnson. Then why would he not send it send it to uh, the members where he can probably win? I mean, this is great sport for those of us who like this as a kind of a, as, as a kind of a sport. Jan, it's really it's really high high stakes, high speed kind of stuff. But there are really important questions at stake, and uh, and I use these these next words advisedly. To be fair to Liz Truss, there is some truth in the point that she makes that, yes, she screwed up incredibly badly, but a lot of some of the forces which have been affecting the UK over the last few weeks are more broad international forces, whether it be the consequences of the war in Ukraine, inflation, rising interest rates, cost of living pressures, all those sort of energy crises, all those sorts of things. And um, it's a terrible position for the United Kingdom to be in, to be inflicting this damage on itself and really struggling with having a coherent response from a from a proper government. Yes, it is. And in fact, you know, the to-do list, I think, facing the new Prime Minister of, uh, of the United Kingdom is exceptionally daunting. They have to fix a 40 billion euro hole in the public finances um, in, a, in a manner that doesn't spook the markets, uh, scare the horses. Uh, they have to do with the situation in relation to the war in Ukraine. Um, really, really worsening, you know, dire circumstances in terms of the cost of living, cost the increase in the cost of food, which we've heard a lot about um, both here and in the UK. Um, and, you know, like I said, winter blackouts, energy crisis, all of these things are in, are, are in the intro. But you're right, though, because it, it yes, OK, look, I will admit to being absolutely bet into the news yesterday. I'm finding <laughs> found it very hard to get an absolute tap of work done. Sorry, Pat. But um, and, you know, also to the, the British journalist Twitter feeds, uh, which were just highly entertaining. But yeah, like there are some really serious um, ramifications to this. You know, and there's a reason why we don't just pay attention to it because it is uh, drama effectively and, and political theatre, but also because there is these and, and one of the biggest issues, and I hate to kind of bring it back to, you know, this topic, but 
from the Irish government side that they're looking at is, okay, each different, basically, firstly, there's the uncertainty again, having just started to bed down with the likes of, you know, James Cleverly, with Chris Heaton-Harris, with Steve Baker, having those meetings, building those relationships back up again. Um, and hearing those kind of uh, words from Steve Baker about, you know, how the, the British government hadn't taken the Irish government's concerns seriously enough before and had kind of bulldozed its way in. All of this kind of little bits of progress that were made over the last couple of weeks. Now they're looking at the situation going, OK, not only will we be dealing with a new prime minister, but effectively we'll be dealing with a new cabinet. Who will be put in place in, in the office in the Northern Ireland uh, and who will be the new foreign secretary? And where, what, where does that leave us? So if you take, for example, we know where Boris Johnson stands on it. That's, that's you know, very evident. Liz Truss was far more, for all of her faults and all of her flaws that Pat outlined during her interviews and her uh, hustings, which I agree, they were really terrible. Um, she was kind of the strongest candidate in relation to Brexit, in relation to kind of riding roughshod over the agreement and about bringing through that Northern Ireland Protocol bill. Rishi Sunak kind of suffered a little bit, I think, because he wasn't as kind of dogmatic as she was and he wasn't as clear as she was. And there is a feeling that he's a little bit softer, that actually he would much prefer like a negotiated settlement with the European Union and and that that lost him uh, a couple of votes during that process and took the shine off him a little bit. So if he gets it, does that mean things become suddenly easier for us in terms of that? Hard to know. The total unknown really is Penny Mordaunt because she for the good chunk of the the last leadership election, remained kind of silent on it. And she was asked about it and she was very quiet. And it's interesting because her, one of her family members, I think her uncle gave an interview, I think it was the Irish Times actually, where he talked about how she was the only Brexiteer in the family. She is Irish Catholic roots, um, but she's still a complete unknown quantity. Does that mean that she's more, I don't know, does that mean that she's more open to negotiations, does that mean that she's kind of less ready to, you know, trigger Article 16, press the nuclear button, hard, hard to know. But these are all the things that the Irish government are looking at now. And once again, kind of throwing their hands in the air going, OK, what next? Right. I suppose from from the pantomime high theatrics of, of what's happening at Westminster, Pat, to the slower, more stately progress of negotiations at uh, European Union level, that's why you're in Brussels. What's going on there? Yeah, we're on day two of a regular two-day summit here. Yesterday was all about energy policy. The leaders were in conference after dinner last night until, oh God, what time? After two, certainly nearer three. I think by uh, by the time they got out, they agreed a text on energy. But I was putting this to the Taoiseach on his way in this morning, that back in this morning when they're talking about foreign policy in China and a couple of other couple of other things, also the EU economy. But uh, I, I was putting putting it to him that on energy policy that they have uh, agreed that they would like to have some sort of a cap on gas prices. They would certainly like to see gas prices come down. But they're not really agreed on exactly how that is going to happen. So I think they found a text last night that they could all sign up to rather than fail to reach agreement on specific measures and how they are going to work. So it's going to be kicked back to energy ministers uh, now to work out and to work with the commission to uh, to to see how a price cap is uh, is is going to work. So I think there's. There's there's more to come over the coming weeks. Uh, there's talk of another emergency summit next month that might uh, that might sign off a deal. But if you talk to people around here, then how that deal is? We've talked about this before about how different countries have 
very different interests and very different conceptions of what a price cap might be and who should pay for it. So I think there's a lot of work to be done uh, on that yet. But what it did was kind of what the EU always does in these situations is it, it rather than having negotiations break down, it found something it could agree on and it moves forward uh, another uh, another couple of inches. So uh, so that's what's happening. That's what happened here last night. And uh, as I say, foreign policy in China on the agenda today. Yeah, and I'd, I'd point our listeners towards Naomi O'Leary's excellent coverage of this if they want a bit more detail on what the what the issues are and the differing, differing uh, issues involved. Speaking of articles, uh, Jennifer, at the end of the podcast, we'd like to pick an article from the Irish Times this week that... That particularly caught our fancy. What did you see? Many articles, many, many wonderful articles in our wonderful newspaper. But um, uh, the one which took out for me today was um, Paul Cullen's article about the children's hospital. So effectively, this article details how part of the facade of the new hospital had to be replaced because it contained substandard insulation. What he's talking about here is that there was this K-15 insulation was removed from the building. This is also the installation that was uh, used in the renovation of the Grenfell Tower in London, where we know 72 people died in a fire in 2017. And I just thought, you know, this project has been so mired in controversy. It seems to me that there is, I mean, if it's not arson attacks, it's uh, issues with the insulation. And let's not forget the massive political controversy it caused for Simon Harris uh, when he was a Minister for Health and an ensuing vote of uh, no confidence and then overall, the, the cost is going to be one of the most expensive hospitals in the world. And it's uh, still not built. Well, it's in fairness, in fairness, in fairness, it is getting there. But yeah, I just thought it was uh, another another eye opening. It is very striking. It's unbelievable, really. Pat, what did you say? Yeah, so my favourite piece was uh, the Fintan O'Toole's column from Tuesday offering his reflections on the controversy over the Irish women's soccer team chanting up the Ra, which we might have uh, spoken about uh, before. And indeed, we, we talked with Fintan about that on Of course on you did, Wednesday. yeah. And uh, so his, his piece, which I'm sure many of the listeners will have seen, basically ran through a summary of many of the IRA atrocities by saying, you know, if you were if you were saying up the right, you were also saying up to the kneecapping and murder and burying of corpses in bogs and so forth. And um, anyway, I think lots of people will be uh, familiar with it because I think it points to something that we sometimes lose sight of in the... While we, we understand that many of Sinn Féin's new supporters, uh, particularly young supporters, are people for whom the troubles are ancient history. It, it, and, and that is a really kind of important development in our politics. It's also important, I think, to state that for lots of voters, the Troubles are not ancient history. They remember them very well. And while some of them, no doubt, um, are prepared to uh, to look beyond it and listen to what Sinn Féin says nowadays, for some people, uh, they don't look beyond that. Or it is part of the picture with Sinn Féin. And I think that's important for our politics as well. The article that took my fancy is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of us have been missing the, the authoritative tones of Dennis Staunton uh, in covering events in London over the last few days. Um, but Dennis is currently in Beijing and he's been reporting on the, on the Communist Party conference there. And he has a fantastic piece, hilarious piece in today's 
uh, newspaper about getting his press accreditation and apparently he had to choose a Chinese name and was struggling to find one that was both uh, both pronounceable and not ridiculous and under time pressure he, he chose one which which in retrospect uh, meant a talented person, handsome and capable. And I have to say that's a fair enough description. What a coincidence. Uh, of, of Dennis. So, uh. Absolutely. <laughs> As always, Dennis found the most used. Uh, and, uh, and I look forward to more coverage of that, of that from Beijing, from Dennis, over the next while. But that's it for today. So thanks very much to, to Jen and to Pat. This podcast is produced by Declan Common. And we are going to be back with you next week. God knows how many British Prime Ministers we'll have had by then. But until then, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>